You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Well, for those of you who do have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John. And we're going to be reading from John chapter 10, verses 1 to 30. John chapter 10, verses 1 to 30. If you're reading from the Blue Church Bibles, you can find John chapter 10 on page 1076. 1076. We're reading John chapter 10, verses 1 to 30. Thanks, Katie. Great, so let's go. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, He goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming... He abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple court, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered round him, saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. 
My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Uh, My name is Ralph uh, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. It's my privilege to be taking us through that passage we just had read, uh, John chapter 10, uh, and thinking through more today about what it means for us to be a reformed church. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive in uh, to think about that a little bit more. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are the sovereign God who rules and reigns on high. You are above all things. In you, all things live and breathe and have their being. And Lord, we pray that as we think about who you are in relation to our salvation, Lord, would you open our minds? Would you help us to leave behind preconceived ideas and to be open to hearing what your word teaches us? Amen. Well, I'd like you to imagine a scenario, please. It's not very pleasant, I'm afraid, but bear with me on this one, okay? So, so imagine we, we finish our service. Uh, you go out, you grab another coffee. You haven't had enough coffee yet. Uh, you grab a cookie. You're having a, a chat with one of your friends. Then you decide it's time to go. You walk down the back staircase. You go out of that exit onto Church Street, and you step into the road without looking. Smash! You're hit by a bus. And the very next moment, you find yourself at the gates of heaven. And God himself looks directly at you and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? Well, if you're a Muslim, you might say, well, I've done my duty. I've done the five pillars of Islam. I've just finished fasting for Ramadan. I've celebrated Eid on Friday. I've even given my zakat this week. That is why you should let me into heaven. And according to the Bible, God will say no. Or maybe you're here and you describe yourself as a kind of secular, tolerant atheist. And you'd say, well, well, I've done my best. I really have. I've tried to be a decent person. I've, I've tried to defend and champion the rights of the oppressed. Women, ethnic minorities, transgender people. I've, I've, I've given to children in need. I've even been along to church several times in my life. That's why you should let me in, God. And according to the Bible... God will say, no. The only answer, the only answer that the Bible gives is that we must point to Jesus and say, because he died for me and said, come. And so I've come. That's what the thief on the cross did on that night that he arrived in paradise, according to Luke 23. The only ground to be welcomed into God's eternal presence 
is Christ and Christ's work. You know, there's been another answer that's been given down through history in the church. It's similar to that answer. It's very similar. So similar that you might not even notice a difference. But it is different. This this is it. Well, I I heard the good news about Jesus at church 25 years ago. I thought it was the very best news in the world. And that Sunday, I decided that I was going to follow Jesus. So here I am. Now, you hear that, and that sounds awfully good, doesn't it? That sounds incredibly close to the gospel. But it is different in a a crucial, in a fundamental way. It makes salvation dependent on us, on, on my decision to follow Jesus. We're week two in a four-week series, looking at what it means for us as a church to be reformed. So last week, we looked at how God speaks to us. He speaks to us through his, his authoritative word, the Bible. This week, we are thinking about how God saves us. And the reformed answer is he saves us through his sovereign grace alone. This is the great debate between what is sometimes called Calvinism on the one side and Arminianism on the other side. Now, you might be sat here thinking, boy, this all sounds a little bit abstract, a little bit intellectual, a little bit academic. Not sure I'm really that interested in these sort of distinctions. Might might switch off for the next half hour or so. Might catch up on my emails. If you're thinking that, can I urge you, don't, don't do that, please. Because what we are talking about this afternoon is nothing less than the very heart of the gospel. In a nutshell, it's the simple question, did Jesus' death on the cross save us or did it merely make salvation possible? Did it actually save? Or did it just make salvation possible? What we're talking about is not obscure and intricate points of theology. No, we're talking about competing worldviews. One worldview has God at the centre, absolutely and squarely at the centre. The other worldview has us there as well. It is about competing understandings about how we become a Christian. One sees it as entirely the free and unmerited gift of God. The other says that it's something that we decide upon ourselves. And it's a fundamentally different view about the future. One view says that we are secure in God's hands And nothing, and no one can ever snatch us out from them. The other says that if you're a Christian, actually you you can fall away, so you better watch out. This, friends, this is not some obscure theological discussion. This is a big deal. And as a church leadership, we adopt the former position. 
what is sometimes called Calvinism. Now, I think that's a really unfortunate label for this view because it didn't originate with John Calvin in the 16th century. In fact, it's a view that's been believed right from the very earliest times in the church. And the sort of formulation of it that we're talking about actually wasn't written down by Calvin. It wasn't written down until 50 years after Calvin's death in 1618 by the Synod of Dort. Now, the synod just refers to a meeting, a meeting of 84 members of uh, Dutch clergy. They, they met together in Dort in order to provide a response to a Dutch theologian called Jacob Arminius, from whom we get the, the term Arminianism. Okay? Now, don't make the mistake that I made when I first heard that term Arminianism. I assumed it referred to people from the country of Armenia... But it doesn't, okay? Not all people from Armenia are Arminians, and not all Arminians are from Armenia. They are different things. Anyway, Arminius, Arminius the theologian, taught that people have free will to respond to God with faith. He insisted that, that God's election of people for salvation was based on his foreknowledge of their future faith. He said that Christ's death on the cross wasn't for a specific group of people, but for the whole world. He said that human beings were able to resist the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing them to faith. And he said that once you become a Christian, once you've been born again, it's possible for you to fall away and lose your salvation. In response, the Synod of Dort came up with a set of, of statements to counter his position. Those statements were, were known as the canons of Dort. Now, it's springtime. I was looking out in my neighbor's garden earlier today, and I saw some beautiful tulips in his garden. And tulip is a great way to understand and remember what the canons of Dort were. There were five statements that you can remember through the acronym of tulip. So T stands for total depravity. We are dead in our sin and we are unable to submit to God. You is for unconditional election. God chose or, or he elected us out of his love. It had nothing to do with any goodness he saw in us, nothing to do with any faith that he saw we would one day have. The L stands for limited atonement. Jesus' death only saved those whom he had chosen. I is for irresistible grace. The Holy Spirit overcomes all of our opposition to him in bringing us to faith. And the P is for the perseverance of the saints, of those who are truly Christ. Those who are truly Christ, they cannot ever be lost. But that's what TULIP stands for. That is what we believe as a church leadership here at City. It's important to say not everyone believes that here, and members can be members of church without holding to that position, but it is the position of the leadership, and it will always be the position taught from the front here. From beginning to end, we believe that salvation is a work of God and only a work of God. 
Now, I'm conscious that is a very long introduction. Thank you for bearing with me. I promise we're going to speed up. But what I wanted to do at the start was to give you the big picture of what we're talking about today, and then we're going to get into the detail of it by seeing how it's a position that is taught in the Bible. Now, we could have turned to lots and lots and lots of passages in the Bible to look at this today, but I wanted to focus on just one, because I think just one actually demonstrates all five things. So we're looking at John chapter 10, verses 1 to 30. John 10 follows on from Jesus healing a man who was born blind in John chapter 9. And John chapter 10 gives us what what John describes in verse 6 as a figure of speech. It is a picture that, that Jesus uses to illustrate to us important things about salvation. And the figure, the, the picture he gives is of a shepherd with his sheep. Now that would have been incredibly evocative for Jesus' first century Jewish hearers. You see, in Ezekiel chapter 34... The Lord speaks to to Israel in exile and says to them, your leaders, they've been bad leaders. They have been bad shepherds. And then in Ezekiel 34, the Lord promises that he himself will come and be for them a good shepherd. Verse 11 of Ezekiel 34, I myself will search my sheep and look after them. Verse 12, I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered. Now, back in John chapter 10, verse 19, do you see why why the Jews were so angry at Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd? They realized that he was saying that he himself is God, the true good shepherd. Now, I don't have time to unpack all the details of that here today, but what I want to do is show how each of the five points of tulip are taught here in John chapter 10. So, first up, we see here in John 10 that we are helpless sheep. That's total depravity. Uh, Verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd... I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Now, I think we have a problem when we come to a passage uh, like this today because we have an over-sentimentalized view of sheep, I think. So we're used to singing Mary had a little lamb when we were growing up and we're used to those beautiful little pictures of, of lambs leaping around in springtime, aren't we? So, so for us, lambs are just cute little beautiful things. And we think, frankly, shepherds, they're pretty lucky people because they get to spend all their day just cuddling up the little sheep and stroking them. Okay, That's, that's what we, we think when we hear about the good shepherd and his sheep. But that's a load of nonsense. The reality is that sheep, sheep are dirty, smelly, stupid, obstinate creatures. That's what sheep are. What's more, sheep are utterly dependent. If you were to go out to the peaks yesterday and join the rain in the Peak District, you may well have seen um, you may well have seen wild deer running around. 
You might have even seen wild rabbits and wild foxes. If you went down to the New Forest, you would see wild horses down there. But you will never see wild sheep. Why? Well, because sheep can't survive on their own. Left to their own devices, sheep will overeat or undereat. They will fall off cliff edges. They'll get run over by cars. Uh, They'll fall over and not be able to get up. Sheep are needy, dependent creatures. And they look to one person to provide everything that they need. They look to the shepherd. Now, what picture, what, what figure of speech does Jesus choose to describe a Christian's relationship to him? We are sheep in need of a good shepherd. If our problem was simply a lack of knowledge, Jesus would have said, you are the pupils, I am the teacher. If our problem was a lack of wisdom, Jesus would have said, you are the followers, I am the guru. If what we really needed was just to kind of pull up our socks and try a little bit harder, Jesus would have said, I am the good life coach. But he says, you are sheep. You are needy, dependent, helpless people, totally depraved. Now, now that does not mean that we're as bad as we possibly can be. We're not. But it does mean that we are lost in our sin. It does mean that we are helpless and utterly dependent, just like the blind man in John chapter 9. We are spiritually blind in need of having our eyes opened. Just like Lazarus in John chapter 10, we are dead. We are spiritually dead. We don't need someone to come along and merely shake us to wake us up. We need someone to come and give life to the dead. We are helpless sheep. And Jesus is the good shepherd. Secondly, we see here in John 10 that we are chosen sheep. That is unconditional election. Um, In the ancient Near East, verse 2 shows us this. Verse 2, in the ancient Near East, sheep, when they were being kept overnight, they were kept in in shared communal pens. So the shepherd didn't have their own pen, but they put all of their sheep into the same pen overnight. Now look at the second sentence in verse 3. See what the shepherd does. The the morning comes, the, the gatekeeper opens the gate, and each shepherd takes out their flock. And look at verse three. The shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He calls them by name. In biblical language, a name is really, really important. It's not so important for us. For us, it's just a label. So my name is Ralph. Okay? It's a way for you to distinguish me from my co-pastor, Matt. Okay? I am Ralph. He is Matt. Okay? People confuse us all the time, but we are different people. Okay? And the way you know we're different is I am Ralph, and Matt is Matt. Okay? 
Names are simply labels to help us to distinguish. But in the ancient Near East, a name meant so much more. A name was who a person was at the deepest, most profound level. So when Jesus says that he knows each of his sheep by name, well, he's saying that he knows them at the deepest, most profound level. We know how to keep up appearances, don't we? I mean, it's written to British etiquette, keeping up appearances, isn't it? So, so, you know, you come into church on a Sunday, I say, how are you doing? And you say, all right. Your, your arm might be hanging off, having been severed outside, and you would still say, I'm all right. That's, that's just what we do. We keep up appearances, don't we? We use makeup and we use concealer and we use Instagram filters to, to project that we're something that we aren't truly. But what verse 3 says is that Jesus looks down to the very depths of who we are. He sees us truly with all the Instagram filters removed. He sees behind the facade. He sees behind our attempts to look good and godly. He sees us in all of our sin and mess. And he says, you're mine. You're mine. Listen, this point is so important that Jesus repeats it a second time in this passage. Verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. He knows us. He knows us inside out, back to front. He knows exactly what we're like and yet he's chosen us. We're his sheep. Now, Arminius and his followers, they taught that that God chose us in eternity because he foresaw that one day we would have faith, faith in Jesus. But but that's not how it worked here in John chapter 10, verse 4. The people aren't his sheep because they follow Jesus. Rather, they follow Jesus because they are his sheep. It's unconditional election. The Arminians say, I owe my election to my faith. The Calvinist says, I owe my faith to my election. I follow Jesus because I am one of his sheep. So I guess that begs the question, well, why did God choose some to be his sheep? in the Old Testament, the people of God are asking exactly the same question. And just as they're about to enter the promised land, Moses gives the answer in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. He says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, God didn't choose you because you were bigger or better or smarter or more godly than the other people. No. Verse 8, Deuteronomy 7, it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand. I remember the first time that I realized that my wife Anna truly loved me. We'd been on a trip uh, to France 
together with some of my old school friends, we were going to visit a mutual friend of ours uh, who was on a gap year. Uh, and I had a great friend, uh, great time with my old school friends. We, we were having a hoot. We were going around acting like complete idiots, okay? All of our silly French accents and saying silly French things. And Anna was utterly embarrassed by her boyfriend's conduct. And when we got back, I remember in Waterloo Station, Anna confronting me about it and saying, you just acted like a fool that whole weekend. I was devastated. But she said she still loved me. And that's when I knew that she really loved me. She didn't simply love things about me. She didn't simply love things I did. She loved me. You see, God chooses people not because he sees potential in them. Not because he sees good in them. But because he loves them. The love is within himself. In fact, did you notice? Did you notice where the love was in this passage? Just look at verse 29. Look on in the passage. Verse 29 tells us that we, his sheep, we are a love gift from God the Father to God the Son. We are chosen sheep, unconditional election out of God's love within himself. Thirdly, Jesus died for the sheep. Now here, Arminians really differ from what we believe here at City Church. You see, they see the cross as merely having removed an obstacle that stood in the way of God forgiving us. They see the cross as simply having satisfied the unsatisfied claims of God's justice, but in a broad and general way. It was a display of God's justice. They say that it didn't deal specifically with any individual's specific personal sin. It just made saving faith possible. We believe that on the cross, Jesus died in the place of sinners, substituting for us, taking the punishment we deserve in our place. And the reason that we believe that is because it's taught throughout the Bible. So in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, we read that God presented him, that's Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement. That means a substitutionary sacrifice through the shedding of his blood. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, which which Chris took us through several weeks back, we read that he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It's the language of substitution. He was punished. He was wounded in our And that's what we have right here in John chapter 10, verse 11. We read, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, now that word translated for is the Greek word hyper. And we don't really have a, a good English equivalent for it. The closest we would get is on behalf of. 
So Jesus laid down his life on behalf of the sheep in their place. A few weeks back, I was um, speaking at a, a conference for International Baptist Church Pastors in Lisbon, Portugal. It was a great fun time. And on the final night, one of the pastors, um, who was the pastor of a new church plant uh, in Scandinavia, said, um, I'd love to go out for dinner with you tonight. I've got loads of questions to ask. I'll tell you what, I will pay for the dinner. Will you come for dinner with me? And I said, yeah, of course I will. But, but as we started to speak, it, it became clear that he was the pastor of, of a very small church that had only just started. He was on a very, very low salary. And I thought, this, this shouldn't be on you. So just before we finished the meal, I went up to the bar and I paid the bill, both for me and for him. Which means that when he got up at the end and went over to, to pay the waiter, the waiter said, well, no, it's already paid. And that's what we believe about the cross. No, it's already been paid. At the cross, Jesus took on himself the punishment for all the sin of Christians. Past, present, future. He didn't deal with sin in some kind of abstract general way. It was specific. He, he was nailed to the cross for the prideful thought I had this morning. He was nailed to the cross for the bitter thought I have tonight. It was specific. But because the cross was specific, because it really paid for my sins, that means it could only really pay for the sins of the elect those God has chosen before creation. Because if it paid for more, then it would be double payment, wouldn't it? It would be double punishment for the sins of unbelievers. Their sin would have been punished on the cross, but then punished on them in final judgment as well. And that would be unjust. And God is never unjust. Now, Arminians say that we have too small a view of the atonement. They say it's limited atonement after all. But actually, it's far bigger than their view. You see, what Arminians claim to be unlimited atonement, that, that Jesus died for the sins of all the world, is actually very limited indeed. Because it means that the cross didn't actually save anyone. It just made salvation possible for anyone. We believe that the cross really did save. Absolutely, fully, finally. It saved all of those who God in his love has chosen in eternity to die for. Fourthly, having died for us, Christians will follow his voice. Arminians teach that people are able to resist the Holy Spirit when he starts to bring them to salvation. We can stop him. But look at what we read here in John chapter 10. The shepherd calls and the sheep come, verse 3. 
Not some of them, not most of them, all of them. Because verse 4, they know his voice. They listen, verse 27, and they follow him. Jesus uses a double metaphor in this passage. It contains two I am sayings. So in verse 7, he says, I am the gate. And then in verse 9, he says, I am the good shepherd. And I think Jesus' point, his reason for using these two different metaphors, these two I am sayings, is he's saying that he is both the way to eternal life through his death, but also the one who will lead us to eternal life. He does it all. He hasn't just made it possible. He has brought us through to eternal life itself, gifting us faith. He is the good shepherd. It is irresistible. I mean, that's not surprising, is it? I mean, a dead person cannot bring themselves back to life. They're dead. A sheep cannot stop themselves from being led by the shepherd. The shepherd will win the battle of wills every single time. The grace by which we're saved is irresistible. And understand what this means. It means that there is no heart too hard to be softened. There is no mind too made up to be changed. There is no life too damaged to be redeemed. There is no history too blotted to be turned around. God's saving grace is powerful and it is irresistible. And that is great news for a city that has turned its back on God. As we hold out the good news of the gospel to the city of Manchester, we should have great confidence that we will see salvation happen because his grace is irresistible. And finally... Jesus will never let go of his sheep. Uh, Look at verse 27. He says, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This is one of the most wonderful promises in the whole Bible. Christians are safe because we are in Jesus' hand. It is firmly gripped. And he will never let us go. Now we need to be clear what this does not mean. It's not once saved, always saved. In the sense that if if you went to the front at the end of a meeting 20 years ago, you're saved forevermore no matter what happens in the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that if we have truly believed, if we've truly been born again of the Holy Spirit, then nothing, no one, no power, no authority can ever take us away from Jesus. And that is so, so encouraging. The Christian life can be hard. The name of this doctrine is the perseverance of the saints, not the holiday of the holy. The Christian life is tough. But this doctrine means we're safe. We may lose our health in this life, but we will never lose eternal life. We may lose our job in this life, but we will never lose the one who worked for us and laid down his life in our place. We may lose our smile in this life, 
but we will never lose the joy of the one who takes joy in us. We may lose our loved ones in this life, but we will never lose the one who has supremely loved us. That's the promise. Christ will hold us to the end. So that's what we believe about how God saves. It is his work from beginning to end, and it is to be received as a free gift, God's sovereign grace. Now, it is possible to to believe all these things in your head. It's possible to score top marks on a test on Calvinism and still to go straight to hell. We're not saved on the basis of our knowledge. We're saved on the basis of Christ and all he has done. But if we get this, if we really get this, not just in our heads, but in our hearts as well, then it will change everything in our life. We'll be secure in who we are. Knowing that we're dearly loved children of God. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. We will be free to live a radically transformed life, knowing that God will equip us for everything he calls us to be as his holy people. We will be bold in our evangelism, knowing that no heart is too hard for God to soften it. And we will be confident about the future, knowing that nothing and no one can ever snatch us out of his hand. All we need is Christ. All we have is Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are supreme and sovereign in all things. Thank you that you are the one who has saved from first to last. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. But through your death and resurrection, you have made us alive. You have raised us up with yourself. And you have promised that you hold us in your hand, the love gift from the Father to the Son. And nothing can ever snatch us from that safe place.